Here's good luck to the pine pod, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the pine pod, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the pine pod, half a pine chill, half a joke, quarter joke, nippin' and the rumbo. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, here's good luck to the half gallon, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the half gallon, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the half gallon pint pot, half a pint jill, half a joke, quarter jill, nippin' and the rumbo. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck. Welcome to the back to the American mow. Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my source material. And currently, we are coming towards the end of this lengthy series on James Fenimore Cooper's Leatherstocking Tales. And in this episode, I'll begin my look at the last of the Leatherstocking Tales in the order of our character, Natty Bumpo. I've been looking at these, starting with the Deer Slayer, which although the last of the Leatherstocking Tales to be penned, is the first in the chronology of our character. This, however, is the third of the Leatherstocking Tales to be published. It was published in 1827, around one year after the publication of The Last of the Mohicans. So if you look at the history of these texts, the Pioneers, Last of the Mohicans, and the Prairie were all written within a few years of each other in the 1820s. And then he didn't come back until 1840 to come back to these, this character in The Pathfinder and The Deerslayer. If you're interested in those texts, you can go and listen to my series on those, which are you know, from a few weeks ago. So this is the first of the Leatherstocking Tales not to be set in either colonial or earlier in early national New York. The first three volumes in the series are all set in the conflicts between the French and the Indians and the colonists. The Pioneers is set in basically Cooperstown in the early Republican period. This one is set some years later um, and very, very far to the west. It covers the final days or final months of the life of Leatherstocking as he has moved from his basically his homeland and where he lived most of his life in New York to the prairies on the other side of the Mississippi. So he's in the he's essentially in the Dakotas. It takes place in the lands acquired by the United States in the Louisiana Purchase in, in 1803 and thus constitutes really a new frontier for the United States. So this is a, a frontiersman like Nanny Bumpo couldn't really survive in in the settler society of, of Templetown, you know, or Cooperstown in, in real life. So he had to flee at the end, fleeing law, fleeing civilization, and all that comes with it. And he chooses to go west. The, the pioneers ends with him essentially just going off to the west. And we don't really know where he's going. It, it's revealed here that he, you know, he basically went farther, in, you know, across the Mississippi. And he's getting so old, he really can't be a, an effective hunter anymore. And he's, he's always identified simply as the trapper. I don't think his name comes up at all in the series. Although it's clearly Natty Bumpo based on references to previous events, especially the events of The Last of the Mohicans are mentioned quite a lot. In fact, you almost get the sense in this novel that Cooper is throwing in these references to the very popular novel, The Last of the Mohicans, almost as like, a, you know, the way, you know, like I guess... Think of an example when Star Trek Deep Space Nine, you know, started. They they put Picard in the first episode, you know, to kind of wean fans of of that series to the to the new series. Uh, Cooper is kind of doing that here with, you know, dropping hints and interesting characters and storylines from The Last of the Mohicans. So it's got the closest connection, I guess, in terms of material to The Last of the Mohicans. 
Um, anyways, so Natty Bumpo has advanced, has fled the advancing pioneer society. We were introduced to in the pioneers. And he's living out his last days as, as a trapper, uh, being really too old to hunt, it seems. And while he's doing this, he runs into a new generation of pioneers. He meets some people who speak to his past, and he again must apply his skills to conflicts between whites and Indians. But it's in a new setting, and it's you know it's a much bleaker setting in a lot of ways, for a couple reasons. One is because we kind of have old Indian feuds come back again, and this idea that, like in the earlier Leatherstocking Tales, it was like the Mingos versus the Delaware, or the Mohicans versus the Iroquois, and the Iroquois were like the bad guys of those of those tales. In this area, you have the same kind of dynamic instead, but it's the Pawnee who are the good guys and the Lakota, the Sioux, you know, they're just called Dakota or the Sioux in this novel. They're the, they're sort of the bad guys uh, or they're the ones that Natty Bumpo doesn't trust. So that's kind of bleak and that it's kind of, you know, history is just repeating itself, but also in the white characters we meet, many of whom have ulterior motives, they're quite odious, they're, they're basically criminals and squatters. And, you know, Natty was a squatter, too, it seems, in The Pioneers. But, you know, these squatters are, are, you know, full of avarice and ulterior motives and agendas. So, they, you know, it's really the, the image we get is that this new generation of pioneers is just going to be like the old generation of pioneers. So there's really no way that someone like Natty can escape this for long. And lucky for him, he's an old man. He doesn't have to worry about it um, too much longer. But those who, who think America needs a frontier would be very frustrated by the way these stories un unfold, especially in the prairie. Now, to be honest, this novel was a bit hard for me to get into, and I, I don't think it's because of the quality of the novel. It's just as good as the other leather, leather stocking tales. I, I think it's more I was feeling a bit of fatigue, fatigued by Cooper. You know, I've read four of the leather stocking tales basically back to back. And then I jumped into the fifth one. And, you know, if you've ever read Cooper, you know, he, you know, it, it's really an intellectual task sometimes to get around it. And the, you know, it's, they're very detailed and rich texts, but that richness, sometimes you can kind of OD on that richness from time to time, you know, and it's, it's, yeah, it, it just can be tough. So, and I started feeling really the eagerness to get into the next series, which is probably going to be a more on black writers from the turn of the century. But as I read more into the prairie and got deeper into it, I, I kind of I found the strengths of the novel and I was kind of got my second wind, so to speak, in, in my effort to read it. And, you know, I I find this to be just as strong as the other leather stocking tales in the end. Um, I've given up any hope of actually trying to rank these. But after I finish talking about the prairie over four episodes or so, I'll, I'll try to just address each one and what I think the strengths and the contributions of each of these texts are. Now, this particular tale is quite sad. There's a lot of violence. There's kidnapping. There's um, kind of the threat of war. There's, of course, the advancing pioneer society. Once again, there's that same kind of ecological malaise we experience in the pioneers. But here it's, it's much more fatalistically presented because it, it's, much more, it's all more about inevitability. In the pioneers, you had this contrast between Natty's sustainability and the pioneers' wastefulness. In this novel... You might still have that, and Natty still is sort of like the Lorax there speaking for the trees, so to speak. But, you know, there's this inevitability of the frontier. When Natty goes, it, it's almost like he gets the image of that the, the dam will burst at that point. Natty, in this novel, the, the trapper, is extremely 
sad and pathetic in a lot of ways. The frontier he knows is truly lost. He has all his heroic qualities that make us love him so much, but you know his age is really picking coming up to him. He still has all this knowledge and skill. A lot of the skills you need to survive in the frontier, but there there's a lot of foils in the story, both kind of intellectual foils, like a character who's a um, essentially a naturalist who you know, it's kind of saying, well, science is the future. And then, of course, in the context of this, you have the Lewis and Clark expeditions, which also kind of present kind of the scientific consequence of the frontier. And I think this this character, Obed um, Bat, is his name, this naturalist kind of, kind of the symbol of this kind of the scientific advance of, of American society. But then you have the villains of the tale who are white and they're com- coming into the frontier from day one with all these nefarious purposes. Of course, that's in many ways the history of the entire American frontier based on genocide and theft. But the way it's presented here is really there's no hope for this this next stage of the American frontier. Now, the novel is a send-off to our great American frontier hero, Natty Bumpo. Um, but without any, without too much more introduction in this, let's jump into the first part of The Prairie. So... We get a brief introduction, as Cooper always does in, in these stories, you know, talking a little bit about the setting and, and some of his thoughts. And essentially what he's trying to say in the introduction here is the Plains, the Great Plains, has become sort of the final gathering of the Red Men. And that's the exact quote of his, the final gathering of the Red Men. This idea is something that we have to come to terms with with Cooper. Cooper, you know, he sometimes he has this image of the noble savage, but sometimes like especially with like chingachgook and um you know even in some other characters too but he also though always wants to insist on something that kind of undermines the noble savage idea which is that indians have history and they, they are historical figures and you know they these societies change over time and this is something that really comes off strongly in the last of the mohicans but broadly i mean if you have this narrative of kind of the decline of these indian societies due to the white advance it's kind of a zero-sum game for Cooper. If whites advance, nature and the Indians will lose out. And this is an association of Indians with nature. And I think it's kind of confused about actually where Cooper sees the Indians. Because sometimes they are complex societies with rich religious traditions and and perspectives and complexities and, and internal divisions and all that stuff you'd expect. But other times it's you see this kind of loose association with nature. And then by seeing them as historical, having changed over time, that change for Cooper is always one of decline and defeat and evaporation. Right? Again, as I said many times in this series, he calls one of his books The Last of the Mohicans. And there are so my understanding is that there are still people, you know, who ethnically identify with this tribe. So he's completely wrong that the Indians were would be wiped out, right? You know, they're, they're still with us and actually quite a vibrant part of American life these days. So the damage that was done was done, certainly. I'm not, I'm not trying to say it wasn't. But this idea of the, the evaporation of the Indian people um, is, is not true. That's not to say there wasn't a, a genocidal efforts by, by settlers' colonialism in the United States. It's, it's just that people, these people endured and, you know, their, their communities survived and you know 
what's the Indian population now? I, mean, I could probably look it up, but it's it's certainly in the in the tens of millions, I think. Maybe not tens of millions, but millions. Okay, so I just looked up the population stats. So around 1800, the estimate was 600,000. I know by around 1900, it had dropped to between 100 and 200,000 people. That was kind of the low point. But currently, there are 3 million people who register as American Indian or Alaskan natives, and then people who acknowledge a combined racial heritage is another 2 million. So total around 5 million or about 1.5% of the U.S. population. So not an insignificant um, part of American life. And of course, economically um, significant as well. So this is, I mean, I can understand why Cooper from his time period would have this narrative. But I sometimes think there's conflicting images of the of the Indian that he juggles at times. And he doesn't quite settle because he's got the noble savage. He's got the, the savage savage, right? The trickster, the violent, the untrustworthy character. He's got the Indian in decline. He's got the ecological Indian in a way. But I do think we should give him credit for for at least presenting them as historical, not static, you know, and and shows these societies as fairly complex. And that certainly continued in this tale. It's not really part of the pioneers at all because there's only one Indian character in that whole story. Um, but in this one, we're back to a frontier where there's a significant Indian population. But Cooper calling it the final gathering of the red men, his exact words, you know, does come back to this idea of, of the decline, right? The, the last stand sort of imagery. And he was basically making this proclamation a little too soon, is my point. So our setting in this this novel is the Louisiana Purchase. It's set clearly in 1805. Now, Natty Bumpo's age is a little bit unclear. He's, he's in his 80s anyways. I think he's like 85 or so. Let's just say around 85. I think d depending on his age in the Deerslayer, we can kind of give a good guess of of the year oh, or of how old he is but he's certainly in his 80s there's a group of pioneers well he's not nanny's not even in the first chapter really except kind of as a as a he just kind of shows up on the horizon or something but there's this group of pioneers traveling into the great plains cooper identifies the Louisiana Purchase as the expansion of white civilization. And these settlers are the proof Cooper posits of, of this arrival of white settlers. That the minute it's bought, it's opened up to, to the settlers. Now, these guys are squatters. They, they don't have any property yet. I don't think land was opened up for sale at this point. Uh, you know, in 1805, the Northwest, quote unquote, Northwest Territories, this, you know, Ohio and Indiana and Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, these places hadn't even been really significantly settled. I, I think there's only a handful of new states by 1805, like Kentucky, maybe. In fact, these settlers we meet are from Kentucky. And here's what Cooper says about the Louisiana Purchase. It's, quote, it gave us the sole command of the great thoroughfare of the interior and placed the countless tribes of savages who lay along our borders entirely within our control. It reconciled conflicting rights and quieted national distrust. It opened a thousand avenues of the inland trail and to the waters of the Pacific. And if ever time or necessity shall require a peaceful division of our vast empire, it assures us a neighbor that will pose our language, our, possess our language, our religion, our institutions, and has hoped our sense of political justice. 
he's writing this at a time when you know the idea of the West of this territory being ground zero for a sectional conflict is you know not even in his his mind. He he would have of course lived to have seen the the Missouri Compromise, eighteen twenty one. This was written not long after that, but that at the time was seemed kind of subtle for once and all the the slavery question about the frontier. He literally didn't know that by the 1850s, the whole question would be broken up into the in Louisiana Purchase, where the first sort of fighting of, of the Civil War takes place in Kansas. But uh, really troubling language here. He He's writing a work of fiction and uses R. He, he, his audience, he's assuming, are all white Americans. And he's claiming this territory for for him or for his people. Now we're told that we're we're having a new generation of migrants here, and we're introduced to some of them. Now we're not introduced to any of these people by name, but we do start to get our cast of character unfold. So I'll I'll, t I'll just go through the main characters that are in the early part of the tale. Basically, we have this large party. It's you know this like cover wagon type of travel, tents and covered wagons, animals, a whole kind of you know Oregon Trail kind of image. We have uh, a, a husband and wife couple, the Bushes, Ish, Ishmael and Esther Bush. They're they're older. They were both born before the American Revolution, younger than Natty, so they're not, they're not like they're still young enough to kind of venture out into the frontier. We don't know why they're going here and and what they're after. They were born around the events of the Last of the Mohicans. So if you had read these two books back to back, because they were published just a year apart, you know the characters who are already getting up there. In this novel, were you know just born, you know during the French and Indian War, so yeah, they would have been bef born before the American Revolution, but they would have basically only known revolutionary America. That would have been their the crucible of their life. The entire reason for their migration is not really known, but they are going farther west than most migrants. And in fact, it's even pointed out in the book that they're going farther than you'd expect because there was good fertile soil that they had sort of passed up. And of course, the Northwest Territories, which became really an attractive place for settlement in the early 19th century, you know, were completely bypassed. It's a very large group with a large number of children. It's, he mentioned seven sons. There's also daughters there. Um, now, with them is Esther's brother, um, Ibram White. And he's essentially the villain of the tale, but that's not clear at this point. Um, the only clues we get in the first part of the story is really the suspicions that Ibram White has towards Natty, and, and there's kind of suspicious stuff going on. But, you know, he's he turns out to be the villain, but, you know, he's just here sort of along with the party. There's a relative who's someone's niece, uh, the young woman of the tale, uh, something that Cooper added in each of these stories is... Uh, a young woman. In this case, it's Ellen Wade. And of course, she's a maritable age. I think, yeah, in every one of these novels, there's a woman of marital age and who she's going to marry is a major plot point. I think only in, only in Deerslayer does she not marry, does this figure not marry. There's actually two of them in the Deerslayer. One dies and the other essentially becomes a, a mistress or a prostitute. But all the rest they marry, so that's something you might expect um, when you run into this character. 
Um, now, this guy's not introduced to like chapter six or so, but there's also a man named Dr. Obed Bat. And he's a he's a scientist. He's a doctor. And he, he's going along basically as a physician. But he's more interested in the natural environments. And, and he's presented often as a foil for Natty Bumpo, part mostly because of his deep interest in in taxonomy and trying to understand nature through science when Natty understands it through experience. And so that's sort of the foil we're given there. Bat is also a very pretentious character. We, you know, he wants to be called Batius, taking kind of a Latinized version of his name. So that's kind of who's in the party. So it's a big group of people. And as they travel west, they run into the quote-unquote the trapper. And this is obviously Natty Bumpo. And he's presented as a larger-than-life figure from right away. Quote, a frame that has endured the hardship of, of more than 80 seasons was not qualified to awaken apprehension in the breast of one as powerful as the immigrant. Notwithstanding his years and his look of emancipation, emaciation, sorry, and his look of emaciation, if not of suffering, there was that about this solitary being, however, which said that time and not disease had laid his hand heavily on him. His form had withered, it had not, but it was not wasted. The sinews and muscles, which had once demoted great strength, though shrunken, were still visible, and this whole figure had attained the appearance of endurability, which, if it was not for the well-known frailty of humanity, would have seemed to buy defiance to the further approaches of decay. So, yeah, he's a bit pathetic, but, you know, he still has that, that strength, and um, and the, the way he gets presented in this in the early part of this, the tale is this caravan's coming and they see this this man kind of in the, you know, in the horizon. It's quite a nice moment. So he right away starts to help them the way he can. He, he leads them to a campsite, which will provide for their basic needs, you know, water, fuel, fodder for the animals, all those kinds of things that, you know, they're going to need. And one of the first things we see the party do is knock down a tree. And this this comes up again and again in this tale is the inevitability of the destruction of, of nature. Now, I don't have a book like, like I did with the pioneers. I had this book by Alan Taylor Williams, Cooper Towns, which really talked about the that book it, it really looks at the history of cooperstown next to the pioneers and what james fenimore cooper did and it's not a literary analysis it's a, histor- it's a work of history but it uses the pioneers quite well there's not a work like that that i know of um, but there is a really wonderful book about chicago that talks about the transition of the prairie into commodities and into grain and it, it's called nature's metropolis by historian william cronin you know, it's called Nature's Metropolis, Chicago and the Great West. And it, it really talks about issues that come a little bit later than the events of this story. But this idea that the, the prairie is going to become the transform from a natural environment to farms, which are going to produce commodities that are going to be sold in Chicago and then sold across the country through the railroads. That's his theme. And I, I think that's I was reminded a lot of that book when I was going through this and all these little bits like having them immediately start cutting down a tree are are reminders that yes that this frontier is going to be changed very rapidly more quickly than we thought and more quickly than even someone like Natty Bumpo would have expected 
Notice they're also bringing with them all the trappings of, of civilization, such as domesticated animals. Now the trapper approaches a white tent that's there. So there's kind of like one tent that's set aside and there's one covered wagon sort of thing that's set aside to a one wagon. And he's interested and curious about it because he doesn't really know why it's there. And he's stopped by Ibrahim White. And this is going to happen several times in, in our story where there's some, and there's, this is the mystery who's in here and what's going on with this. It's going to be revealed pretty quickly, but it's kind of our first mystery. And it's our first sense that something's not right with this group of pioneers. So that evening while eating, Natty talks about the region and the people all identify themselves. And Natty's focus on this in this passage is all about the emptiness of the prairie. Quote, you may travel weeks and you'll see it the same. I often think that the Lord has placed this barren belt of prairie behind the states to warn men of what folly may may yet bring the land. I weeks if not months may you dwell in this open fields if there is not if there is neither dwelling nor habitation for man or beast. Even the savage animal travel miles on miles to seek their den, and yet the wind seldom blows from the east, and I can see the sounds of axes and the crash of falling trees are in my ear. Um, a really strong ecological claim that Natty Bumpo is always there. Like I said, he's, he kind of has this position as the Lorax, especially in these, the, the prairie and the pioneers. We also, though, get... An interesting conversation with the trapper and Ellen Wade. You know, Ellen Wade's like out walking alone and he talks to her and they talk about the future of the frontier. And the trapper is kind of resigned to the fact that men and law are going to come. And this is what he says. The law, tis bad to have it, but I sometimes think it's worse to be entirely without it. Age and weakness have brought me to such a weakness at times. Yes, yes, the law is needed when they're as such not have the gifts of strength and wisdom to be taken care of. I hope, young woman, if you have no father, you at least have a brother. So this this is something that I think is what he comes down to in The Pioneers, is that if you're Natty Bumpo, of course, you don't need law. You can kind of live out on the frontier. But most of us can't, and most of us need society. And that means we need law. And that means, you know, that means some sort of general will, and we need some sort of social compact. And unless you're this one in a million kind of guy, you're going to you're going to have to have it. And, and this is something he confesses in late in his life. He resisted individually, but I think he realizes for the larger group it's necessary. So while the trapper and Ellen are talking, they're approached by a name named Paul Hover, H-O-V-E-R. And he's following the party because he's in love with Ellen. The Bush family really wants nothing to do with him. They, they don't like him for some reason. So he's not really allowed in the party, but he's he's creeping around. He's hanging around the, the group and he'll meet with Ellen when he can get away with it. So he's just kind of a floater. Um, I think they're somewhat aware of him, but, you know, he's just really not welcome in the party itself. Now, Paul's an interesting guy. He, he's a bit another kind of foil for Natty. He's, he's a skilled bee hunter. He's not a beekeeper. So he's not bringing he's not a domesticated. It's not about domesticization like the main party is with the domesticated animals. He just goes to like beehives and he's he knows how to like get the honey from them and he harvests the honey and then he sells it. And they discuss the skills needed for frontier areas. Like Paul's skilled with a rifle 
and he's able to kill animals and he talks about this but he never kill eats the animals he never doesn't live off them so he's a little bit more civilized than the natty who still wears like his deer skin leather and eats the animals he at this point he traps he doesn't hunt anymore so paul is sort of of the frontier in the sense that he doesn't out raise bees but he really is a hunter uh, and he hunts them from the wild now, as they're talking, the trapper hears noises and identifies them as the approaching horses of, of Sioux warriors, Tetons. And they're quickly captured by this band of, of Tetons. So this is the word we, we, we get for kind of the warriors of the Sioux. And so we immediately, both Cooper and the reader, are, are immediately going to compare the Sioux with the Mingos and how they're presented. Quote, the unfortunate bee hunter and his companions had become the captives of people who might, without exaggeration, be called the Ishmaelites of the American deserts. From time immemorial, the land of the Sioux had been turned against the neighbors of the prairies. And even at this day, when the influence and authority of a civilized government are beginning to be felt around them, they are considered a treacherous and dangerous race. At this period of our tale, the case was far worse. Few white men trusting themselves in this remote and unprotected region were so false a tribe known to dwell. Now, I mean, this is exactly how the the Huron and the Iroquois in general are described in the other Leatherstocking tales, particularly the the, the Deer Slayer, um, the Pathfinder, and Last of the Mohicans. Now Paul, who has reasons to hate the Bush family, thinks that still thinks that they're powerful enough to hold off the Sioux. And we get an interesting conversation about land ownership on the frontier and the theft of the lands by whites. And this is another like the ecological subtext, we get this subtext of theft constantly being brought up by by our author it comes through this this dialogue between the the sioux warriors and the captives quote have not the pale faces stolen enough from the red man that you make yet you come so far to carry a lie i have said that this is hunting ground of my tribe so anyways we're just being reminded that this this land is all stolen um natty tries to explain why the parties in the dakotas he even uses flattery at times so he's quite as skilled with dealing with the lakota he even knows their language now we're introduced to this chief matotri matori uh, m-a-h-t-o-r-e-e matori i guess now then cooper goes into this vast detail on an adventure that matori goes on with some other uh, Sioux, where they kind of sneak into the bush camp, go up among the animals. And it's interesting that we kind of have a contrast between like the wild animals that are hunted by the Lakota and then the domesticated animals. So I, I do think there's a contrast being made here between the types of animals. And, you know, the, the Lakota are somewhere in the middle because they're they're using horses that they domesticated, but they're hunting mostly um, wild animals. But anyways, he releases the wild animals or, the, or the, the domesticated animals, the particularly they're interested in the horses and the cattle and things like that. They're basically cattle rustling, but they're more interested in the horses. So the captives watch and listen as the Indians drive the animals into the prairie. And so basically the, the Sioux are stealing these horses. Now, Paul wants to help the Bush family, but Ellen convinces them not to reveal himself. Paul still has some respect for the ability of the family to hold out for themselves based on what they did in Kentucky. And he starts to talk about their previous experiences in Kentucky. That suggests that they'll, they'll be fine, that they know how to handle the rifle, so to speak. Well, how did the captives get out of the situation? Well, basically the trapper, Natty, 
turns the tables on the Sioux by cutting himself free and then while the guards aren't looking or something he cuts the Sioux horses free and they're driven to the prairie as well so there's kind of this general chaos in the scene where all these animals are running free and the priority then is to get these animals back and this allows them to escape Paul Hover goes his own way he doesn't want to reveal himself really to the Bush family but Natty and Ellen do return safely to the camp back at the camp Ishmael has some doubts about Natty's role in the rustling but Natty insists that he doesn't need horses. He's not a horse guy. He grew up and he, he was kind of lived his life in New York where he didn't use horses. And he actually uses this as evidence of why he doesn't use horses. Um, and then Ishmael kind of just continues to talk to the trapper and they discuss and compare war stories. So again, we're, we're, we're getting a little bit of a hint of the Bush family's past. And it seems some point of connection between these two characters because Natty, of course, has a lot of war stories. So after this, Cooper shifts the scenes for a while and we're introduced finally to our, our kind of resident scientist, Obadid Bat. And I don't know, it's kind of a bizarre section. We're, we're told that Ishmael has brought this guy along essentially as the doctor. Um, but Obadid Bat's real interest in being here is to check out the new the life and, and to record it. And if you know anything about the Lewis and Clark expedition, you know that this is one of the agendas of the Lewis and Clark expedition. And the journals had all these documents of not just the people that lived in the plains, but also the, the animal life, right? And we have even pictures from this, this, this expedition. So it's being somewhat alluded to in this chapter. In many ways, this character, Batius, maybe we'll just call him Dr. Batius. That's how he likes to call himself. He is a contrast to Natty in the sense that he he overthinks nature, I guess, and he does this through taxonomy. That's his real advocation. He he's interested in subdividing and categorizing, and he 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 gets this Linnaean system down pat. And whenever he sees an animal, he kind of gives it a name, right? And even sometimes it's ridiculous, like when he, in this case, where he actually finds an animal because it's dark and the animals have been rushed around. He brings it back, he names it, and it turns out that this is his own um, donkey that's been, that he found back. So, you know, giving it a name is kind of ridiculous. It's just a donkey, right? It doesn't need its fancy name. But we got a kind of a comedic scene where... You know, he declares this new animal he's discovered, you know, and he calls it this great beast and things, and it's revealed to be nothing more than his own donkey. And the question I guess Cooper wants us to think about is, is the application of taxonomy really that useful of a science? It doesn't seem to help with any of their struggles. Um, there are interesting conversations that this guy has with Natty on religion in particular and in science but it's not really applicable knowledge. In this way, he's very much like the character David Gamet from The Last of the Mohicans. Both are comedic figures, to be sure. Both are presented as foils for Natty. Um, and both do have a character arc to them that's, that's rather significant, where they have to come to terms with being in this new environment and, and facing new kinds of struggles. So now the situation that this group is in after this point, because they lost their horses. So the caravan can't really move on and 
it can be attacked by Indians. So Natty talks about the frontier in uncertain terms. He, he condemns the expansion of white people yet again. So, you know, he's always doing this. And he even mentions at one point how ridiculous it is to talk about claims of, of land ownership in a place like the prairie. Right. Like and this is kind of a, a poke in the eye about the Louisiana Purchase itself, because France, which basically didn't explore and settle this territory, you know, they inherited it first from Spain and then they found they didn't need it because of the Haitian Revolution, because at the time, Louisiana was like a colony almost of Haiti or an adjunct to the, the to Haiti. And when Haiti was lost, they didn't need it anymore. He needed cash to fight the British and the Napoleonic Wars. So Napoleon sells Louisiana to America although you know it's all owned by by Indians who live there right it's just these white people are kind of passing it around and Natty does sort of bring up how silly it is to to talk too much about law and land ownership at this point you know in this circumstance but eventually they move to some high ground where the group they believe should be able to watch for and defend against Indian attacks Natty begins to wonder again about this isolated white tent he saw before, but he's scolded for inquiring into things that don't concern him. Natty finally walks off, and he's kind of always going in and out of the camp at this point in the story. And he's approached by Paul Hover. And they talk about the Mingos, and really to show the advance of the frontier, Cooper reveals that, Na that Paul knows nothing of Natty's lifelong enemies, the characters that dominate so much of the story of the leather stocking tales, the, the Huron, the Iroquois, that, you know, they're not really in Paul's memory. So this is the frontiers kind of already pushed past this. And much of what made Natty's life significant is forgotten. And this is, of course, a common experience of old people all over the world and at all times where the new generation moves on. History rolls on and the old get left behind and their contributions aren't as valued as, as they once were. So basically, they're holed up on this hill, and a week passes while they're, they're here. Through a series of odd conversations, we start to get more of the story about what's going on with this strange family and their odd quest here. We know, because Cooper tells us, that the inhabitants of the hidden wagon is a woman, and she is described to us on page 980 of the Library of America version. Quote, a female stood on the spot from which Ellen had been so fearfully expelled. Her person was of smallest size that believed to comport with beauty, and which poets and artists have chosen as the beau ideal of female loveliness. Her dress was of dark and silky, glossy silk, and fluttered like gossamer around her form. Long, flowing, and curling tresses of hair, still blacker and more shining than a robe, fell at times around her shoulders, completely enveloping the whole of her delicate bust in their ringlets, or at, or at others streamed long and waving in the wind. The elevation at which she stood prevented a close examination of the lineaments of her countenance, which, however it might be seen, was youthful and at the moment of her unlooked and, un and for appearance eloquent in feeling. So young indeed did this fair and fragile being appear that it might be doubted whether the age of childhood has entirely passed. So that's, that's the woman, and that's, that's, what's been, that's the person who's been hid in this tent. We don't know why yet, um, but... We're going to be told pretty soon. One of the older of Ishmael's children talks to his uncle, Ibrahim White, about her. And he's Asa, A-S-A, A-S-A, Asa. He, he accuses Ibrahim of kidnapping. 
um, at this point of the story. And he's 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 so should we see there starts to be divisions within this Bush caravan over this character, over this woman. Ibrahim simply responds that the authority in Kentucky are not looking for me. They're looking for Ishmael and his sons. So he's not only acute kidnapped this woman for some reason, he's kind of able to push the blame off on the Bushes. So there are suggestions throughout the story up to this point that the Bush family is criminal. Cooper always identifies the Bushes as squatters, for instance, but this is the first real clear description of the depth of the crimes that they are engaged in and kind of the nefarious actions they're involved in. But we're also told that there's deep divisions between this on this issue within the Bush caravan. So now, now Dr. Bat, Natty, and Paul Hoover are kind of hanging out together, enjoying buffalo meat. Now, Mostly they're discussing the usefulness of Battius's science and pretensions in the knowledge of the frontier. And this is an old theme for us. We don't always come back to it. It's very, very similar to what I said about Gamut in the last of the Mohicans. And basically, Natty thinks all you really need to do is listen to the beasts. He says, um, Why, man, you are farther from the truth than you are from the settlements with all your bookish learning and large words and hard words, which I have once for all said cannot be understood by any tribe or nation each of the Rocky Mountains. Beastly habits or no beastly habits, the creatures are to be seen cropping the prairies by tens of thousands. And this piece in your hand is the core of as of as, uh, as of as a juicy buffalo hump a stomach need crave. So the point he's making here is you're eating the buffalo. You don't need to know like the scientific name for this creature. You don't need to categorize it. It doesn't really matter. So, but anyway, but it comes up a lot in this story, so it's, it's worth pointing out. The worthlessness of Batty's knowledge is revealed when there's a noise, and Battius assumes that it's a great beast, but Natty knows right away that it's humans. And at this point, a man reveals himself. Who it is is left as a cliffhanger, and since I'm going to stop the episode pretty shortly, I'll, I'll just tell you who it is. It's the grandson of Major Duncan Hayward, the character from The Last of the Mohicans, and his name is Duncan Uncas Middleton. He's taken the name of Uncas. So he, the Major Duncan Hayward had actually honored Uncas and Uncas's sacrifice through this through his children. And so Duncas Uncas Middleton is some kind of symbolic carrier on of, of an Indian identity. And this is not the first time we've seen this. We've seen it in the pioneers with Oliver Edwards, who was half Delaware, but only by kind of association and cultural association, not by blood. But um, this is about 100 pages into the prairie. Um, now, as with all the leather stocking tales, this one is a slow burn. But we're excited as readers to be entering into a new setting to get out of New York. Natty's involved with a much larger group of people here. And the loyalties and antagonisms are much more complex than they are in the other novels. And we have this profound mystery about why these people are coming to the frontier. And who is this strange, young, black-haired woman who was apparently being kidnapped and hidden away. What we got some really great themes here as well. I, I think the theme of crime and squatting is revisited here. It was something talked a lot about in the pioneers and it's here too. It's just the approaching of law with law comes crime. And so people can be criminal when there is a legal infrastructure in place. The first three novels, of leather stocking tales were both in wartime and in a much more frontier setting. The last two are, you know, law is a bigger concern. 
in the story. Now, Cooper gets around it by pushing farther to the west. So, yeah, there's legal elements, but everyone's kind of far away from anyone who can actually arrest them for it. So we can kind of go back to frontier justice. Nevertheless, you know, there is clear criminal identity in some of our characters, you know, kidnapping, for instance. You know, that, you know, we had kidnapping before in Last of the Mohicans and the Deerslayer, but it was never really identified as a crime. Just the way the Mingos act. Family and its boundaries is an important theme here, and it's and how far family loyalties go. We seem to have deep divisions between the family members on their loyalty. Um, we have an extended family with a lot of internal factions, it seems. And we have characters who could be part of the family, like um, Hoover, Hover, who's not really being welcomed in. Uh, we certainly have the theme here of science, especially theory versus practice. Badius being the kind of theoretical scientist and Natty in his own way being more of the practical scientist. The, you know, and So this is going to come up again and again, especially with this character. Um, Indians, again, is a theme, especially with the introduction of conflicts over land, the pushing out of the Indians of their land. And the f we're not yet at that point in the story. But it's always, we're constantly being reminded that the white people are coming. And when they come, you know, the Lakota, the Sioux are going to go the way of, of the Mingos. And then let's just say aging is a theme. We, we have this aging hero. And not many great heroes in American literature do we see get old. Uh, you know, I guess not long ago that movie came out, Logan, where we get to see Wolverine as an old man. You know, so sometimes it comes up, but it's, it's not as common as you might think to actually look at heroic figures in their old age. And this is, you know, a good example of a character being brought to the end of his life and to see how he's going to handle the changes in society. Now, for him, it means leaving, but he has to change his own profession. He can't be a hunter really anymore, so he has to be a trapper. Um, he's encountering new advanced science, new religious attitudes that conflict with his own that'll be something we'll talk about in a future episode so there's a lot of uh, of just the struggles of being an old lonely man i mean really his only friend is really a dog he's kind of a sad and pathetic character and knowing what he's done in his life it makes it all the more tragic to see where he's ended up so thank you so so i'll end here thank you so much for listening i'll, I'll have three more episodes on the prairie and that will let us put an end to the leather stocking tales uh, if you have any comments about this book, if you have any feelings about it, please send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or leave a review. And then I'll be back with part two of The Prairie. Here's good luck to the daughter, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the daughter, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the daughter barrel, half barrel gallon, half gallon pint pot, half a pint jill, half a jill quarter jill, never get another round bowl. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to the barley mow. Here's good luck to the landlord, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the landlord, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, 